0: The following talk was given at the Sati Center for Buddhist Studies in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at sati.org. I want to move on to um, another sutta that illustrates, um, well, how the, how another, another way that the Buddha talks about loving kindness. And um, and you'll see that this fits quite well with some of the things we've already been talking about. And so, this is in the Majjhima Nikaya, it's the 31st discourse. The Majjhima Nikaya is the middle-length discourses. These tend to be much longer than the ones in the connected discourses. But there's no thematic structure to this collection. And in English, it's called The Shorter Discourse in Gosinga. So some of, the, some of the sutta titles tell you something about the sutta. Like there's one called The Removal of Distracting Thoughts like, oh, okay, I know what that's about. But a lot of them have titles like this that don't tell us very much. Um, but the the context of this, which tells of the Buddha meeting with three uh, monks, uh, is that previously, and it appears to have been coming from a situation where there was a dispute in the Sangha uh, called the Quarrel at Kosambi, another place uh, in you know, in northern India and northeast India and this, uh, I find this story particularly uh, well, I, I just think it's a fun story. Uh, there were quite a few monks who, uh, living at Kosambi. And, and one of the things that uh, we learn about the setting of the, of the Buddhist teaching in his world is that as his community grew, uh, some of the senior monks would start to lead groups of, of junior monks. So that the Buddha wasn't teaching directly all the time with particular people. that you know, Because it got to be so many, hundreds and hundreds of monks, that you know he would sort of give people, assign people roles. And it's interesting, so different uh, of these senior monks would have different kind of specialties. So in, there are these two groups together, one of which was led by a senior monk who was... Um, very knowledgeable about the rules the the all the precepts, because there were two hundred and twenty seven rules that the the monks had to live by and uh, so i 'm not sure about the other leader, but we 'll say that he was more of an expert on just meditation it 's not so important because the the first one is the important one so the the meditation master went to the uh, the loo <laughs> went to the outhouse <laughs> to do his business, and now, as you may know, in India, the the role of toilet paper is taken by water, so that one uses water to accomplish the same purpose as we use toilet paper for, and so in this. I forget how they refer the term they use for it. Uh, anyway, he's in there and there's a bucket, right, with water and a scoop and and the rule said that if you use the water in the bucket, you don't leave the bucket half empty. You take it out and you refill it. This monk the senior monk did not know that rule. And so the person who went in afterwards realized that he had broken this rule and uh, went to the rule senior rule monk and said, you know, this guy broke a rule. So the senior rule monk went to the meditation monk and said, you know, you broke a rule. You didn't refill the bucket." Now, I know this is very esoteric in a certain way, but think of it in your own life. you know if there's ever anything that someone does in your own household that we agree that we're going to not leave dirty dishes in the sink, right, and then you come in and there's dirty dishes in the sink, right? so all right, put that aside so the rule so the monk who had broken the rule says i didn 't know about the rule i didn 't realize that was a rule, so the rule monk says, Well, then it 's not a violation because if it 's a violation, then there's a certain you have to make amends for it or apologize to the community or it depends on if it's a, the the level of severity for certain rules you can be um, demoted. <laughs> Uh, so that if you're a senior monk you're not a senior monk anymore or if it's really a bad rule or if it's a really bad breaking rule like having sex for instance then they just kick you out altogether but this isn't a really serious rule right it's what we call it a minor rule but so, so he tells him it's, it's, it's not a violation because you didn't know but of course in the future you'll know so And so, each of these monks has a following of monks. And the word gets to the followers of the rule monk that this had happened, but they get it wrong. And they go to the followers of the meditation monk and say, your teacher broke a rule. And they're like, what? So they go to their teacher and he says, no, the rule monk told me it, it it wasn't a violation. So it wasn't a rule. So then they go back and tell the other monks, no, he didn't break a rule, you know, because your teacher told him it wasn't a violation. Oh, no, your teacher is lying. Lying? No, you're accusing our teacher of lying. So back and forth, and back and forth. The, the quarrel begins. So... And somehow the senior teachers get involved, and they're, you told me it wasn't a violation. And, and uh, you know, there's this whole turmoil. So the word gets to the Buddha. So the Buddha goes to visit them at Kosambi. He says, you know, what is going on? Like, you know that I, you know, harmony in the Sangha is most important thing we can't be having these kind of quarrels you need to let it go drop it you know move on so you know if it were us probably if the buddha came in here and said you know people stop we would probably no they didn't they did not respond positively they were like you know just butt out we don't need your help we've got this covered the buddha's like okay like so there's this great phrase that shows up in many of the suttas where he says, now is the time for you to do as you see fit. In other words, <laughs> shine on, as we <laughs> would say. So the Buddha leaves. A- and then he, the next place he goes is to Gosinga, where we encounter these three monks. So that's the backstory <laughs> to this sutra. Thus have I heard, on one occasion, the Blessed One was living at Nataka in the brick house. No idea what that is, but uh, which is sort of odd, the Buddha living in a brick house, but anyway, don't know anything about it. Now on that occasion, the Venerable Anuruddha, the Venerable Nandia, and the Venerable Kimbala were living at the park of the Gosinga solitary wood. So Anuruddha is a senior monk, and Anuruddha... Uh, was apparently a cousin of the Buddha. The Buddha seems to have had a lot of cousins. They keep showing him some of them. He gets along with some, not so much. Anuruddha good. Anuruddha, though, uh, we learn in in other places that he was uh, had these a lot of powers. He developed some kind of of the the cities that that, that that's s i d d h i. These are spiritual powers that derived from deep concentration. So he's a pretty, you know, serious monk. Then when it was evening the Blessed One rose from meditation and went to the park of the Gusinga solitary wood. The park keeper saw the Blessed One coming in the distance and told him, Do not enter this park, recluse. There are three clansmen here seeking their own good, do not disturb them. So apparently there's monks, they're like having a retreat in the in the woods and the, there's a park keeper who protects and who's kind sort of looking out for them. It's kind of an interesting situation, just imagining that, you know, if, if you had like a park in Redwood City where like a, three homeless guys went in there <laughs> to meditate, and then there was somebody who took care of the park and they kept people out so nobody would disturb these guys. Then the Venerable Anuruddha heard the park keeper speaking to the blessed one and told him, Friend, park keeper, do not keep the blessed one out. It is our teacher, the blessed one who has come. Then the Venerable Anuruddha went to the Venerable Nandia and the Venerable Kimbala, who are the younger monks, and said, Come out, Venerable sirs, come out, our teacher, the blessed one has come. Then all three went to meet the blessed one. One took his, now here we, this is a very, uh, Typical description of what happens when monks meet with the Buddha. One took his bowl, and outer robe. One prepared a seat, and one set out water for washing the feet. The Blessed One sat down on the seat made ready and washed his feet. Then the Venerable Ones paid homage to the Buddha and sat down at one side. (laughs) So just, again, these little details... These guys are mostly walking around barefoot, right? And so whenever they come somewhere and you know, they come, they, they bring water to wash their feet. But unlike in the Bible, where the disciples wash Jesus' feet, here the Buddha washes his own feet, so for what it's worth. Slight cultural difference, but same problem, right? Same problem. When you walk around barefoot, your feet get kind of dirty. So here's where the, the the sutta starts to present actual teachings rather than the things that I just find intriguing culturally and historically intriguing. So the, the Buddha says, I hope you are all keeping well, Anuruddha. I hope you are all comfortable. I hope you are not having any trouble getting alms food. In, in, in this whole dialogue, Anuruddha basically repeats everything back to the Buddha. We are keeping well, we are comfortable, we are not having any trouble getting all this food. So, trivial point, but to me telling, that here the Buddha is visiting these monks who are in a very serious meditation practice, but the first thing he wants to know is, are they getting fed so he's looking out for their welfare. It's not just you know, are you enlightened? It's like are you guys okay? You know, are you getting food? Because you know, they live on alms, on people giving them food each day. They're not allowed to to keep food. They're not allowed to grow food. They have to they depend on the villagers that presumably there's some there's a village nearby where they would go each morning and walk through and get alms to be given given food and the Buddha just wants to make sure like, you're getting food. And then he says and here's where we start to see the echoes of the quarrel at Kosambi. I hope Anuruddha that you are all living in concord with mutual appreciation without disputing, <laughs> blending like milk and water viewing each other with kindly eyes. So this sort of yeah, you know, a sort of unusual phrase, blending like milk and water. It's not a a f- common phrase that I've encountered before. You, usually, when we talk about people n- not blending, it's like oil and water, right? And so, milk and but milk and water, we realize, oh yeah, those, you can stir them together. You pour some milk into your tea, and Anandrita. Answers in the positive. Yes, we are living in concord and mutual appreciation without disputing. And so, the the first half of the sutta, or the first section of it, we'll see that the Buddha keeps pressing these questions. And again, I think this is because he'd just come from this setting where the monks were really not getting along. And he wanted to see okay, how are you getting along? And also, this then becomes a teaching that we have now that shows how we're supposed to get along with people. But Anuruddha, how do you live thus? Venerable sir, as to that, I think thus. It is a gain for me, it is a great gain for me that I am living with such companions in the holy life. So the first thing he says when asked about how they get along is that he reflects on gratitude that he has this situation. And it's, you know, something that we can all forget very easily. You know, if we're living in a setting with loved ones, or if we come to a Dharma center, you know, I don't know about you, but I have a tendency to kind of get, I have what's called an aversive personality, so I kind of see the negative first, like, people are annoying, or they're bothering me, or, you know, why are they doing that? Why is that person breathing like that? (laughs) Rather than, oh, it is a gain for me, it is a great gain for me that I am able to practice here with these people that share these values that I do. And then he goes on and he says, I maintain bodily acts of loving kindness toward these venerable ones, both openly and privately. I maintain verbal acts of loving kindness toward them, both openly and privately. I maintain mental acts of loving kindness toward them, both openly and privately. So, when I first discovered this sutta, I was planning to give a talk on loving kindness, and I went to the index in this collection, and I looked up loving kindness, and then I saw that there was a sub note or a Subtopic: Loving kindness in action, and that was why I went to this sutta, and so that's what is you know really what this sutta is about, and and why I bring it forward in this context of living kindness. That we can often characterize loving kindness, and it's presented in the Buddhist world somewhat as just a meditation. Just sit there and meditate and send love to people and then get on with your day. (laughs) Like, you're done. But, I mean, that misses the point, right? This is meant to be more than just a thought. and, And for it to really have value... It's got to go beyond having a thought. So when he says, I maintain bodily act of loving kindness toward these venerable ones, both openly and privately. So he's doing things for them that they know he's doing, but he's also doing some things that they don't even know he's doing for them. right? Because we know that there's a difference between doing a generous act publicly and doing it anonymously. right? There's a difference Karmic consequence from that. When you do it publicly, there can be a little bit of ego that goes along with that, and sort of wanting praise. But to just do it anonymously is to really let go of that. Oh, I need people to know that and to recognize it. So, you know, it's interesting that this is pointed out in here. And so, the the other thing to understand about what this is talking about, he's bodily acts. Verbal acts, mental acts. These are the three ways that we create karma. And so it goes back to the other sutta where it said good conduct of you know bodily conduct, mental verbal conduct, mental conduct. So these are the three ways that we create karma. We don't just create karma by doing things. Now that's the the you know most obvious thing. And you know, so societally, socially, it's kind of the most praised, I suppose, or you know, acknowledged. But according to Buddhist teachings, it is the mental karma. It's the 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 mental act that is most important because that's the starting point. Famously, I actually brought brought um, Gill's translation of the Dhammapada. The opening of the Dhammapada. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a corrupted mind, so anything we do out of that mind, and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. So it's, everything starts with the mind, even though we think of, the, of karma as being the external thing. It's, and there is a famous turn that the Buddha does with this idea of karma, where he says that karma is intention. So the intention is is the thought. It's the the impulse behind the action. So that's what colors and and creates the consequences. It's what really uh, will infuse the the karmic results of any of any action. Is the intention behind it. So in any case, what we're seeing here is that Anuruddha is referring to the three ways that we create karma. I maintain bodily act of loving-kindness toward them, verbal act of loving-kindness, and mental act of loving-kindness. And then he says, this other beautiful phrase in this one, uh, uh, I think I had it on here, yeah. I consider, so he says to himself, why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do? Then I set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do. We are different in body, venerable, sir, but one in mind. It's a really powerful guiding principle, right? Why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do you know, and it's a it's not an absolute guideline for spiritual practice because it's not always wise to put aside our own. We have to take care of ourselves as well as take care of others. But when, when I, as I said, when I first encountered this sutta, so I, I also was at the time the father of a toddler. So she's now 25, so that tells you how long ago it was that I encountered this sutta. When I read that line, I thought, this is what A parent does. We set aside what we wish to do. Like, I'd really like to go out to dinner or go to the movies, but I have to take care of my child, right? And do what this venerable one wishes to do, the little venerable ones, you know. (laughs) Now, again, just a beautiful teaching. And then this final line, we are different in body, but one in mind. You know, great... Great teaching to carry with us and and goes back to what the Buddha said to Ma, the Pasnaati and Malika that you know when you realize that you are there's no one more dear to you than yourself, and everyone realizes they're more dear to them than themselves themselves, then we realize, oh, we all have that same quality of. of you know, wanting to protect ourselves, wanting to take care of ourselves, needing to needing to take care of ourselves. We are different in body, but one in mind. So I, I just find that whole paragraph to be so rich and and uh, full of sort of guiding principles for living. And the other monks then agree with Anuruddha, the Buddha keeps going. He says, Good, good, Anuruddha. I hope that you all abide ardent, diligent, diligent, ardent, and resolute. Surely, Venerable Sir, we abide diligent, ardent, and resolute. Now, this is a very uh, important phrase, diligent, ardent, and resolute, but from what I have studied about this, and I think it was B. Kubody again, who's the translator of this collection, who, who mentions, because this stand, stood out to me as well, but he mentions that this, is, this phrase, everywhere else he's seen it in the Pali Canon, is referring to meditation. And that it's very unusual for it to refer to just how people are getting along how they're living together in the forest. So for what it's worth, because if you've ever studied the four foundations of mindfulness, the Satipatthana Sutta, this is one of the key phrases in there, diligent, ardent, and resolute, and refers to the quality of right effort in meditation. So uh, the Buddha here seems to be applying it to uh, their living in harmony here, blending like milk and water. And as I say, Anuruddha replies, yes, we are abiding, diligent, ardent, and resolute. But as with every other question the Buddha asks, he requires details. (laughs) I want the the receipts on this. But Anuruddha, how do you abide thus? Venerable Sir, as to that, whichever of us returns first from the village with alms food, prepares the seats, sets out the water for drinking and for washing, and puts the refuse bucket in its place. Whichever of us returns last, eats any food left over if he wishes, otherwise he throws it away where there is no greenery, or drops it into water where there is no life. He puts away the seats and the water for drinking and for washing. He puts away the refuse bucket after washing and he sweeps out the refractory. We're getting the details about their housekeeping. (laughs) Why is this preserved in a 2,500-year-old sutta? Why do we need to find out about how they take care of their little campsite? And again, I think this points to how important these kind of things can be in a living situation, right? These can be the things that blow up in a household, you left the dirty dishes in the sink again. You know you didn't put the toilet seat down. You know, it, right? I asked you to start the dishwasher. You know, you know it's garbage day. Why didn't you take out the garbage? You know, these are these are things. These are real things, right? It's it's trivial, and yet to blend like milk and water, we need to do these things, and and I love it because it it again takes loving-kindness away from these lofty realms. You know, the Brahma Viharas, the divine abodes. And there are suttas and there's, you know, teachings where we find that, you know, if you practice loving-kindness and fulfill that in the deepest, deepest meditative states, you'll be reborn in these other realms, these heavenly realms, right? Well, great. Meanwhile, how are things going at home? (laughs) Right? Are you blending like milk and water and, and that's that 's sila right that 's the first part of the path you don't you 're not going to get out there to that rebirth if you 're not taking care of this foundation yeah. and you know and, and i 'll say I mean some of the people here, a couple of you in any case know know me from my other role as a person who works a lot with people in recovery and in and I often bring these together in the the question of recovery from addiction with the Dharma around this very question that that what, what's beautiful about recovery in the addiction world is that we are learning to take care of ourselves and of others and of the world in very basic ways. And, and addicts have a, a lot of problems, but... but one of their problems is that they make a mess of their lives. It's not just that they're drinking and using or whatever their addiction is, but that they, you know, they kind of go through life and this creating this chaotic world around them. And, and recovery is very practical. It's really learning to show up and take responsibility for things, and kind of be an adult, you know, and. One of the reasons I love working with people in recovery is because they've laid that foundation of sila when they come into the Dharma world. And then, you know, there are people who come into the Dharma world, and, and I was one of them because I started my Buddhist practice before I got sober. And I had these lofty ideas about going on retreats and having, being enlightened and having these bliss states, but my life was chaos. It was a mess, you know. I won't go into the details. Some of the details are in some of my books, so you know. But, it, and it was only when I got sober and started to take care of those foundational things that my spiritual practice really blossomed. You know, and it took years, that whole process. But that's what the Buddha is talking about. He's saying, you know, you need to start at home, you know, start with your the way you get along in your home, and then build out of it. Because what's interesting here in this sutta, uh, and, and striking, and if you didn't understand this connection, so many of you I know know this uh, this phrase, sila samadhi panya. So it's, this is how the eightfold path is broken up into these three sections. Sila is the, the behavioral aspect morality, and it's the taking care of the house. It's the foundation of it. Samadhi is the meditation. It's the cultivation of the clarity, focus, mindfulness, concentration in meditation. Panya is the wisdom, the insight that arises out of that. So it's a process of development, a gradual training, as it's sometimes said. So if you didn't realize that, the next thing that shows up in the sutta would seem to be completely Bizarre and out of place. So after, just after this description of how they take care of their campsite and and some of which uh, I might go back over because some of it I think is also very telling but the next thing the Buddha says is good, good Aniruddha but while you abide thus diligent, ardent and resolute have you attained any superhuman state a distinction in knowledge and vision worthy of the noble ones, a comfortable abiding. So after th- all of this, then Buddha immediately asks, basically, have you attained enlightenment or some stage of enlightenment? And you think, Well, what's that have to do with cleaning up the refuse in <laughs> the you know but it's because it's Sila Samadhi Panya. The rest of the Sutta it's just all about these states, and it and it's you know it's lovely, you know it's it's great. It's several pages of it, and all of it, how it is, is uh, you know that their their attainment is the gods have heard about their attainments, and they're all talking about it, and they're all excited about it, and all this stuff. But but for me, it's this opening that's so moving, because it's so real, it's so human, it's, it's what we all have to deal with. I I hope we can all attain superhuman states, distinctions in knowledge and vision worthy of the noble ones. I, I certainly hope so. But I'm pretty sure that we have to take care of this stuff first, and, and that that's what it's going to build on. So... I love that sutta. <laughs> oh, I love sharing it and talking about it. So, yeah, I'll, actually, I'll, I'll go back to one, one other lo- line in here. Uh, when they're describing how they take care of their campsite, when he says, the person who's cleaning up throws it away where there is no greenery or drops it into water where there is no life. We can see here, Right. They're very environmentally sensitive. They don't just throw the garbage into the, in the plants, and they don't. If there's some fish swimming around, they don't throw garbage in there that might harm them or might pollute the water. So we can see that the, there's environmental sensitivity in the suttas. So a few minutes before we take our lunch break, thoughts, questions, comments. As you were talking about the, uh, the the three phases that start with sila, it, it seems as though that's how you build the momentum of karma and the causes and conditions that lead on the Eightfold Path. Is that the way you see it? Yes. And... <laughs> It's important to remember that that seal is not just behavioral; it's also mental. What Bhikkhu Bodhi calls mental purification. So, and and I can I can get caught up, particularly because of my recovery orientation, to thinking about behavior as kind of the key thing, but again so that so that to th- to think of Sila we don't even though we can lay it out in this order Sila samadhi panya is actually a web the eightfold path is a web it's not it's not a chain mm-hmm. it's not that you start at one point and get to the end point they're intermingled because we can see that mind as i was talking about before mindfulness needs to be there in order to have right intention and right intention then is behind behavior in the recovery world we say right action leads to right thought and which there's certain truth in that but the the critical thing you know if we it's not enough to just act, you know, look good. You know, be give away a lot of money and, you know, uh, seem to be a really, have nice parties and everybody likes you, you know. I often hear this thing, oh, he's, he's a really great guy. You always hear this on sports broadcasts when they're, oh, that, he's a really great guy. And I'm always like, are you sure? <laughs> like, what do you know about what goes on inside that person? And, and course, behind the scenes but but the internal so that the sila samadhi panyo there 's a mental purification and a, and a verbal and a, and a behavioral purification as in sila and that depends the only, the reason that we do that is because we have right view because we understand that suffering is caused by clinging so so the sila is influenced by right view, which is supposed to be panya. So it's not really the end of the path, right view, right? And then, and then that right view triggers right intention. <laughs> and all of it, but you've got to have mindfulness to know that what your intention is. And you've got to be mindful when you're speaking to create good... So you can see it's all just intertwined. And, and you call it a web, but your body language re- reveals a kind of a spiral yeah. where there are kind of connections between the levels of the spiral as yeah. it moves. Yeah, the, I, I say a web because I, partly because I've heard Bodhi use that term, so I bow to his wisdom and his language. The only thing about because a, spi- a spiral... Seems right too, but there is something more hierarchical about a spiral, you know, because you're kind of like you're spiraling up, <laughs> or you're spiraling down, <laughs> depending on where you're spiraling. So, and just in terms of an image, but but yeah, it it works that way too because it's there isn't sort of a beginning or an end. It's got that that element of spirality, if if you will. That's good. Thank you. We have a question on the chat Okay, good From Sarah um, I very much appreciate this discussion And I have really found that Quote, move a muscle, change an attitude Close quote, works How does this relate to the teachings Where attitude seems to come first? Uh, I was trying to find the thing And then I stopped listening to you So, can you I can't find it, so read it to me again Sorry I very much appreciate from Sarah this this discussion, and I have really found that quote, "move a muscle, change an attitude," close quote works. How does this relate to the teachings, where attitude seems to come first? Right. Yeah, I mean, this is it goes to that same AA expression of uh, right action leads to right thought. Um, Because, and And so, to put it in a little bit of context, when you 're an addict, <laughs> the first thing you need to do is stop doing what you're doing. <laughs> you 're doing and it, it 's hard to like change your whole mind about like, oh really, but just first thing like stop it and so that it's come to be this sort of accepted. Wisdom that oh, it's that action comes, and then later on you'll figure it out. You'll understand it better, or you'll 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 change the way you're thinking. And so the the move a muscle, change an attitude is a, is I think saying the same thing, kind of like get going. And so there, that uh depict something that's real but the Buddhist understanding would be that before you can move a muscle there has to be an intention that you can't do anything without intention now intention is quite often not seen or even acknowledged or known by the person who has that intention right we do all kinds of things unconsciously but the mind, which is why it's better than saying a thought precedes it. It's the mind, as as Gill translates the Dhammapada. The mind precedes the action. So somehow the mind, that impulse, or is there is an intention there, even though you don't re- see it. So that's the Buddhist argument on that on that case. Uh, at the end of the day, you know it's hard it's hard to see intention um, and 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 we deceive ourselves right I mean this is the famous phrase i don't know where it comes from, but the road to hell is paved with good intentions and I would say that that's that's not accurate the The road to hell is paved with uh seemingly good intentions or intentions that are claiming to be good but the intention the true intention is always going to manifest in a karmic you can kind of tell by the karmic consequence what the what the actual intention was you know Yeah, I just wanted to come back to the sutta and the story and the backdrop and the final close out. Yeah. Uh, so it started with a lot of quarrels. There were a lot of quarrels about the, the scoop and all that, filling up the water. And then the Buddha comes on the scene and he asks them what happened. And nothing of that quarrel actually persisted into the Anuruddha's response was there a punchline? Supposed oh, Anuruda wasn't there. Oh, yeah. This is a whole other group of people, right? It's like the, the, the in Kosambi where the quarrel was. There's all these monks. The, the Buddha leaves, takes a hike. We don't know how far, but he's always walking around, right? It could have been 20 miles. It could have been 50 miles. A few, probably a few days later. I mean, I'm just conjecturing because we don't. Uh, there's no historical record, as far as I know, about the the timing of all this. But this is a different place. He's gone to Kosinga from Kosambi. So. <laughs> so the quarrel wasn't part of the Sutra. The, the quarrel, what? Wasn't part of the sutta? No. It's, actually, it's a different Sutra. Oh, okay. I thought. Yeah. You... That was my that was my lead up. Okay. Yeah. It's it's um. I think it's in it's it's mostly covered in the um the monk the vinia which is the monks rules the, and the the vinia has all the uh all the stories behind all the rules and and I've never read it uh, whenever I, when I talk to the some of the monks today they will be like, oh, that's in Nevada, and I'm always like, where can I get all of that? They're like, mm, yeah, you don't want to see that. <laughs> and I think it's pretty like dense, and, but uh, I don't know. It, yeah, it's in here somewhere. I'll have to. I'll. will see if I can find it during the lunch break. I believe it's in the uh, Majima. So w- we probably should take uh, lunch. I was. Getting, uh, my plan was to do ten to one, and then have a. Uh, well Forty-five minutes to an hour for lunch, uh, depending if people have brought food, and then uh, then we'll go from two to five. Um, let's let's just take a moment and sit, uh, and we'll, we can do our uh, preparation for mindful eating. So, what I like to notice in preparing for mindful eating, is how hungry I am. So notice if you are hungry or not. And if you sense that you're hungry, see if there's sort of a a range of hunger that you feel. and breathing with your hunger. Hunger is just another word for desire, a desire to eat, a desire for food. When we can learn to be less driven by desire, then we create less dukkha in our lives. Less suffering. So, see if you can breathe and bring calmness, a settled mind state, not one driven by craving. So that as you approach your meal, you do so with a balanced mind, with a mind not driven by craving. Meals are a time when we have the opportunity to feel or express gratitude with the food which we have, where we can recognize interdependence, seeing how the food that we consume is brought to us, cultivated for us by others, how Fruits and vegetables, other foods are dependent upon the sun, the rain, the earth. Seeing that humans and nature are all interdependent, that we are part of a vast web of Interdependence. Finally, that we eat to sustain ourselves so that we can cultivate the qualities of wisdom, loving kindness, and compassion. Enjoy your mindful meal.